So there's this standing joke between some of my colleagues and myself. Sometimes folks have seen it happen to me. Others know it because I've just told them about it. And that is this. Occasionally someone will be talking to me, and they're not sure I really understand what they're saying. Maybe it's this blank look on my face. Maybe it looks like I'm just, you know, too dumb to get it. I, I don't know, whatever it is. And so they immediately go to this place, and it happens to me all the time. They try to talk to me in musical terms. <laughs> They're thinking, surely if I talk to Dan in musical terms, he'll get it. And so they start saying things like, you know, Dan, it's just like, and they're explaining whatever this is or talking to me about this. They say, it's just like, like in an orchestra. Like there's violins and there's trumpets and there's percussion instruments. There's all that. And I want to go, oh, now I get it. <laughs> and so I've told my friends, it's, you know, those who, who've seen it happen, I said, you know, it's a little annoying, but I just deal with it and go on. Well, I'm going to introduce this message to you today. I'm going to talk to you in musical terms, okay? Because I want you to get it. How many of you ever seen a real conductor conduct an orchestra before? The real conductor would not be me because I just do all kinds of strange things. Has, have, how many of you ever, somewhere in your life, took either a piano lesson or you studied an instrument in school? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are absolutely complete non-musicians? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to do the best I can. Someone from the balcony is waving at me with both hands and feet. <clears throat> you can put him down now, sir. That's fine. I've got it. Or talk to me in musical terms, and then I'll understand it even better. Um, you know, if you've ever studied an instrument, even for a short period of time, you know that within common time or 4-4 four, four time, there's four counts within the bar. Okay, I know there's other time signatures, but let's just talk about 4-4 four, four time. And the conductor does this. Now, you're supposed to conduct with your right hand even if you're left-handed. I never, I, I'm so seriously left-handed that if I do it, it looks like this. I can't, I can't do it. So you do like this. Here's the downbeat. One, two, three, four. Let's all do it. Put your hand up. Use your left hand, make me feel better. <laughs> One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Faster. One. All right. You're all certified conductors now. Give yourselves a hand. Now, there's, an important, there's several important places in this little diagram. You'll see that. Now, there's obviously variations on the theme to that, lots of variations. The downbeat is very critical. Three, four, one. That's very, very, very critical because that says where the bar is starting. But anyone who's ever spent any time under my direction has heard me talk about something else, and that is this. As important as the downbeat is you need to pay very, very careful attention to where count two is. Now, why? The reason for that is because when you establish the distance or the space or the amount of time between count one and count two, you have then established what the space and the tempo is going to be thereafter for the rest of it. 
between count one and count two. The second step is extremely, extremely important. Let me give you one other analogy, another musical one. Most of you know I spent many years as a um, arranger, producer, uh, orchestrator of lots of Christian music. I still do that, not near as much as I used to, but I, I still do that to some degree. And there's all different kinds of roles that you play in that process. If you're the arranger, you're the guy who writes the music. If you're the orchestrator, you write the music for the orchestration. Um, and, but the producer of the recorded project is the guy who is kind of like the foreman on the job. He hires the talent. He hires the studio. He hires the engineers. He makes sure everybody gets paid. He watches the clock. He gives the reporting back to the record company. He does all that stuff. And another part of his responsibility is he's responsible for the how that uh, once the tunes are selected and they're going to go on the CD or the long play album or the cassette or the 8-track, whatever it is, whatever generation you come from, and it's all changing now again. He's responsible for the order of tunes and how they go on the CD. We call it the sequencing, the sequencing of the album. Now, is he going to give thought to what the first tune is? Yes, that's, that's important. What are the, what's the listener here right out of the chute? What's the first thing they hear? They're going to give thought to that. Is he going to give thought to what the last tune is going to be on the project? Yes, because that's how you're going to leave the listener. They're going to leave with that in their mind as they finish, assuming they listen all the way through. But a good producer will be very careful what tune he puts in the number two slot. I will tell you my personal experience is I gave as much or more attention to that number two tune than I did all the rest of them together. The first tune, you kind of expect it to come on with a certain splash, a certain whatever, kind of an opening. You know, some people would almost call that a throwaway tune to kind of get the attention of the people. But when you get to tune number two, you're really establishing the attitude and atmosphere and the tone of the recorded project, pro project from that point on. The title of this message today is The All-Important Second Step. I have a question for you that I want you to answer by a show of hands. Has anyone in this room ever messed up? Show of hands. Well, no, no, come on, keep them up. Ever messed up? Keep your hands up if you've ever messed up more than once. Balcony, have you messed up? Okay. Keep your hands up if you've messed up more than twice. There are no hands going down. All right, you can put your hands down. How many of you have ever messed up and wished for a second chance? Well, let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to go to the Word of the Lord and with this approach, asking this question. Understanding the importance of step number two, we're going to go to the Word of the Lord and we're going to ask this question. The question is this, I've messed up. So now what? I've messed up. So now what? You know, sometimes we mess up and, and, and we just don't know what the next steps are. Sometimes the mess up is small. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's of such a nature that you have no idea what's, what you're supposed to do now. 
once you become aware of how significantly you've messed up. And how many of you here in this room today know that being a Christian does not prevent you from messing up and making wrong choices? How many know that's the truth? Four of you. Wonderful. All right. Let me just say this to you today, and I hope you'll stick with me for the next few minutes. I'm going to try not to be eternally long today and preach the everlasting gospel. I'm going to try. But I want us to see today the incredible grace of God. You know, the theme song of the church now for hundreds of years has been amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You hear it in church. You hear it sung at funerals. And I don't know that we will ever grasp the full measure of God's grace. I just know that today my heart is extremely thankful for it. How about you? You know what, church, this is the very kind of day that God can restore us and bring us back to the place that we're supposed to be, even if we've messed up. And I'm glad we can say this today. He's the God of a second chance. How many are thankful for that today? And when we use that phrase, second chances, how many know that doesn't mean he stops at two? And thank God he doesn't stop at two, but he goes on and on and on and on. And that's called the grace of God. Can I get a hallelujah today for that? And then, you know, it's easy to think once we've walked right into something that we've messed up and say, wow, is it that easy to mess up? Is it that easy to blow it? Many times we don't get it right. What I'm wanting you to hear me say today to you is this. What the Lord has spoken to my heart is this. How critical is that next step? What's in the second place? The next thing you do. Because the truth is this. None of us get it right all the time. I certainly don't. But what we find so often that we must be aware of is this. That disobedience follows disobedience. How many of you ever noticed in this life that sin has a way of multiplying? Particularly when you don't take the right second step. When you don't do the right thing in the second place. Sin has this uncanny way of adding on to itself. And it seems like one bad decision has a way of turning into ten. And what I'm asking you to give focus to this morning is this. Your next decision after you have disobeyed. The next decision after you have messed up is a very, very critical decision. You're in a fit of emotion. You yell at your kids or you snap back at your wife. What happens next is extremely critical. That second step has great bearing on where you go from here. Could have happened on your way to church this morning. Could have happened last night. So what happens after a moment that you mess up? What's the next step for you? Where do you go from here? Some people try to just dismiss it. Some people try to minimize it or act like it didn't really happen. Can I, can I just remind you what's not in the Bible? What's not in the Bible? Time doesn't heal all wounds. It's not in the Bible. And we need to understand this, that messing up is not a sinner thing. It's a human thing. Whether you're doing steroids in baseball and lying about it, or whether you're committing immorality and you're denying it, we all mess up. And once we do, we all too easily find ourselves continuing in the pattern of wrong decision and we see sin multiplying. 
A mess up turns into lying, which turns into some other kind of cover-up, which turns into something else. And suddenly we have this tangled web that goes on and on and on and on, and there's not a person in this room that is exempt from it happening to you. And as Christians, we're not exempt from this problem either. Pastors aren't exempt from it. Oh, my goodness. People saved for years, been walking with the Lord for years. They mess up. Most godly people you know are capable of messing up. But always remember this. Christians are not sinless, but we should sin less. You need that again? Christians are not sinless, but church, Christians should sin less. A year ago, I spoke with you about the consequences of a decision that the children of Israel made in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm sure all of you remember the sermon in every detail, I'm sure. Probably have your notes with you right now. You can pull them out. About the consequences of a decision that the children of Israel made, it, was, it came from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they chose a king when they should not have done so. And what I'm giving you today is somewhat of an addendum to the message that we shared on that day. I, to, you know, it's amazing how time flies. I was thinking, when did I give that? Was it April? Was it March? It was last August when I gave that message. Time flies, right? Well, they made a really bad decision despite spelling out the consequences for that decision. They really messed up. And as I've come across 1 Samuel chapter 12, which is where we're headed today, I've discovered the now what to that story. It's kind of like the aftermath to that story of them making a, a very bad decision. You've made a bad decision. Now what do you do at this point? Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to read and just, you can stay there. I'll reference a few other things, but you can stay in chapter 12 today of 1 Samuel. I'm going to read to you what happened after a bad decision. Now let me just remind you, Samuel had pleaded with them, don't choose a king, let God be your king. And then God spelled out in 1 Samuel chapter 8 all the consequences that would happen for making that decision. If you, if you make this decision of going ahead and, and getting a king, and despite knowing the consequences, the people said, we still want a king because everybody else has one, and we want to be like everybody else. And knowing that they made the wrong decision, now we end up, all that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8, now we end up in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel's coming to the end of his life, and he's about to speak to them about what's next after this bad decision. Now, here's what I want to say to you. I want you to really listen to it carefully. It's profound in its wisdom, and it's profound in its practicality. I mean, it's just real-world stuff that we're going to get into today. It's also played out in the New Testament, and we will see that as we go along, as I point you to references in the New Testament as well. Look at this with me. Here's what Samuel tells the children of Israel after the bad decision. They've messed up. Now what? 1 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 13. Samuel says, all right, here's the king you have chosen. You asked for him, and the Lord has granted your request. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord, some versions say, if you serve the Lord, and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's command. Now remember, this is after the bad decision. This is post bad decision. If you fear the Lord, worship the Lord, and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. 
But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be as heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors. Now stand here and see the great thing the Lord is about to do. Skip to verse 19, please. Pray to the Lord your God for us or we will die, they all said to Samuel. For now we have added to our sins by asking for a king. Don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You you have certainly done wrong, but make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on Him. You know what he's saying? What he's saying is this next decision that you make, this next thing, this step number two, this count two for you, is extremely critical. Your bad choice is now calling for a very critical, obedient decision. And what happens so often to those of us who are pastors or, or counselors, those of us who counsel people, is, is that they've made, folks have made the ten bad decisions before they get to us. Because bad decision follows bad decision follows bad decision. So what Samuel is saying here is this. Since the original bad choice was made, let's get you back on your feet with your heart toward the Lord. And be very cautious about this second step. Let's make this next one the COD. The critical obedient decision. Let's make your next decision the COD. I've messed up the first one. But this is going to be my critical obedient decision. And Church, when you fall, and you will, we all do, get back up with your heart toward the Lord and look for the grace of God because it's there for you because failure is not final in grace. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap of praise for that today. For Samuel 12, verse 21, Samuel says, don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot, cannot help or rescue you. They're totally useless. The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name. Somebody ought to say hallelujah to that. For it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. As for me, Samuel says, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. And I will continue to teach you what is good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve Him. Think of all the wonderful things He has done for you. That's what Arthur admonished us to do today. And that is a good thing to do when we come into the house of, of the Lord. When I think about the Lord and all He's done for me, then praise comes. This, what we've just read, is an amazing day after disobedience. It's a day after disobedience. This is an incredible moment for any, any one of us here that we can extract out of this narrative the wisdom that, that we need to live by because we all mess up. And you've already admitted that, so I, I, I'm on to you now, all right? We all have our moments. Moments where maybe it's, the mess up is, is as simple as missing an opportunity to witness for Jesus. Missing the opportunity to share the gospel, share the good news of what he can do. The opportunity was there and we knew it, but for whatever reason, we were too busy and we, we walked away. We had other things we had to get to and we missed it. Or we say something that we shouldn't have said to somebody. 
We all have our moments. Or we, we belt out something that should have been restrained. We knew we should have had self-control. We knew there should have been gentleness, but instead we brought a harsh tone to the situation. And Samuel is speaking now, post-disobedience, about a post-king, about a post-bad choice. And yet, nothing bad has happened. They chose their king. And in fact, Saul, who was their first king, gave them a victory. If you read it back in 1 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. So this is not, hey, it's been going bad. Let's return to God. It's been going good, but let's come back to God. And there's a critical, critical lesson for us today. Their repentance The children of Israel, their repentance, their decision was not based upon the fact that everything was going wrong, so let me come back to God. And yet, you know what? That's true for most of us. Most people will come back to God when everything is going bad. Am I telling you the truth? Most people will come to God when everything has fallen apart. Their marriage has fallen apart. Things have gone wrong with their kids. Uh, Something's unfortunate happened with their health. That's when they're ready to come back to God and commit to Him. But that's not what happened here. But there is something, church, hear me, in the depth of a man's heart that says this. I know this decision I have made. It offends God. Not because everything is going bad, but because I know this hurts the heart of God and I'm going to return to Him. And there is a danger in the repentance that only wants to stop the bad stuff from happening. You didn't hear me. I said there's a danger in a repentance that the only motivation for it is that you want the bad stuff from happening as opposed to the repentance that wants to stop offending God. That's the truth, church. And here's what Samuel says. If you will fear the Lord, post-bad decision. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and worship Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against His command, you and your bad choice, you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord. Listen to me so very carefully this morning. There's such amazing grace in these words. We're literally seeing God begin to give a second chance, even in the midst of a bad choice, a bad relationship, something that went wrong. And Samuel says, and God is going to show us his grace in this. But your second step is very critical. You've messed up. So what are you supposed to do? God is offering not only them, but to anyone in this place today, a second chance, a third chance, a twelfth chance, a twentieth chance. And thank God that he is. Jesus, help us today. Help me today. He's offering to those of you who messed up last night, whether you're in the main floor or the balcony, it doesn't matter. He's offering you today an opportunity to set things right and to not make a critical third and fourth bad decision of a place you shouldn't have gone to, a thing you shouldn't have said, an email you should not have sent, a person you should not have been with. But today you say, I did it. What's my next step? 
And this is where the grace of God comes in and says, let me do something that can change you for good instead of you taking a path that's going to bring you to critical problems for the next season. This could be a life-saving day for someone today if you will have ears to hear. And God opens up and says, I want to extend forgiveness. I want to extend grace to you. A friend of mine tells a story about a lawyer in his community. The man was an attorney who, after reading the Scriptures, he had a real encounter with Jesus that really softened his heart. So this attorney decided, after reading the Bible, that he would cancel the debt of all of his clients that owed him money for more than six months. How many of you would like an attorney like that? (laughs) Paid in full. He said that he drafted a letter explaining his decision and that it was biblically based, and he sent out 17 debt-canceling letters by way of certified mail. It's a true story. So this lawyer has an experience with God, tells 17 of his clients that their debt to him was canceled. He sends out the 17 letters. The only thing that the recipient had to do was to sign the certified letter. That's all they had to do. Now listen to this. One by one, the letters were returned unsigned and undelivered. The attorney reasoned, well, maybe some of them have moved away. But when it was all said and done, 16 of the 17 letters came back to him because the clients refused to sign an unopened envelope, fearing that the attorney was was suing them for their debt. 16 of the 17 had in their hand, you are free from your debt, but wouldn't sign or open it, being afraid of what could happen if they opened the letter. And can I tell you that's exactly what God is doing for you today? The God that we have offended, the God that we owe everything to. He sends us a letter and he says, open this up because there is forgiveness for you today. Hallelujah. Don't walk out of this place today, my friend, without opening your heart to God because this could be the day that God sets you on the right course. And can I tell you, I know what's in the letter. And you know what's in the letter too. The letter says God loves you. He forgives you. He can change you. That's what's in the letter today that he wants to give you. And I want us to open this letter for just a little bit. I'm not going to go real long, I promise. And see what God is exactly saying to you. God didn't say, get rid of the king. He didn't say, get out of this thing. God said, watch and see what I can do and turn around the, the whole thing. And there's a key phrase here that I want to show you that will, be, that will be very practical when we come to a close here in a few minutes. The key phrase is in verse 19. You're still in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. Verse 19 says this, pray to the Lord your God for us or we will die, they all said to Samuel. For now we have added to our sins by asking for a king. The people were saying, pray for us because we don't want to keep adding sin upon sin. We don't want to keep adding bad decision upon bad decision to what we've already messed up. Pray for us. Because if we don't have the wisdom of God on this, then we will keep adding sin upon sin. That's our nature. That's the way we'll do it. We've proven that's what we'll do. We are capable of continuing to add more bad decisions upon more bad decisions to what we've done. That's the nature of sin to multiply itself. We recognize we've been disobedient, but we don't want to continue in our disobedience. That's the worst thing we can do. And sometimes, church, we get this crazy thinking that says, well... 
I've already blown it. I might as well go all the way. Can I just tell you that's the worst thing? Can I just tell you that's the dumbest thing you can do? Don't add sin to sin. Don't add bad decision to bad decision. So let me get practical with you. There's three things. If you have pencil and paper, it would be good if you wrote them down. What's next? What is this critical second step? What did God speak to them and how did God use Samuel? I've messed up, so now what's next? Let's find the exit ramp from this spiral of bad decisions and get the wisdom of God from this chapter. The first thing God calls for is confession. First thing God calls for is confession. We know this from 1 John 1, 9. What does John say? Not to sinners, but to Christians. He says this, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our wickedness or from our unrighteousness. Sin has a way. I believe he's talking to us about sin today. Was he talking about sin? Yes, I am. Sin has a way of wanting to stay hidden and unconfessed. In fact, it will fight tenaciously to remain in darkness, if you haven't noticed. Sin has a way of wanting to stay in private and never coming out of the dark. But always remember, sin incubates in privacy and darkness. Sin incubates in privacy and darkness. It grows larger the more you don't say anything. If we confess our sins, it says, and here's the interesting thing about that word confess. Now, get this. If you don't get anything else, get this. This word confess, particularly from 1 John, you can check it out in a Greek lexicon or in Strong's Concordance or whatever you use to check out the root meaning of a word. The word confess does not simply mean admitting. The word confess does not simply mean coming clean, acknowledging you did it, or spilling your uh, information. The word actually means this, to say the same thing. What John is saying to us is this, confession is saying the same thing about what you did as God would say about it. You let that sink in for a second. True confession of your sin is not saying, yeah, I did that. No, true confession is saying, acknowledging, and believing the same thing about your sin as God would say about it. It's seeing the same way as God would see it. And that's what's happening with the children of Israel back in our text in 1 Samuel. When Samuel comes to them, they weren't saying, oh, we made a little mistake. We're going to minimize this here. We, we got bamboozled. Somebody led us down a wrong path. Well, we got lied to. Well, it was peer pressure. We, you know, we kind of succumbed to that. No. They said, we've committed a grave, evil, wicked sin. Confession starts with the fuller realization that you have hurt the heart of God. Would you like me to find something else to preach this morning? True confession does not start with the fact that you got busted. True confession doesn't start with the fact that you got caught. 
True confession does not start with a motivation that says, well, I need to tell this, I need to do the confession saying so, so that things will go better for me. There is no selfish motivation in confession. It's not about so that things will go better for you. So the bad stuff will stop. I'll confess this so the bad, all the bad stuff and the, the damage control, all that, that will stop. True confession, church, starts with the full realization that what you have done has hurt the heart of God. And you see it as God sees it. And it breaks you. And it causes you to repent. I think for some people it can be a three-step process. Some people will go to step one. And they'll say, well, they accept that what they've done is wrong, displeasing to the Lord. They understand that God expects something better out of them. Albeit, at step one, there may be some bit of resistance in their heart to change their ways, whether it's spoken or unspoken. It may be hidden only in their heart. That's step one. But some people will move to step two in their confession. At step two, you, you embrace the need to confess and you begin to see the value and the benefit and the blessing of it. And it causes you to move closer toward the Lord. And there's something within you that wants Him so bad and doesn't want to hurt Him any longer. And then some people in their confession move all the way to step three. And this is the person who has messed up. But they now move to the position of appreciating the opportunity to confess and repent. They've taken full ownership of their actions. They have seen their actions the way God sees them. They're no longer simply accommodating someone else's request to live righteously. They're living righteously because it is now their value system in as much as the law of God is written on the wall of their heart. True confession is seeing your mess up your sin the way God sees it. I love what the early church father Augustine said when he said this, the confession of an evil work is the first beginning of a good work. The confession of an evil work is the first beginning of a good work. Confessions, seeing it the way God sees it. That's the first instruction from Samuel. After a mess up, there's going to be three. I've given you one. Two more instructions from Samuel on what's step two? What's step two for you if you've messed up? These are going to be born out of the New Testament as well. Samuel says to them in verse 23 of chapter 12, As for me, I will certainly not sin against my Lord by ending my prayers for you, and I will continue to teach you what is good and right. My journey after I messed up starts like this. It's confession, realizing what I've done. Realizing what I've done has hurt the heart of God. But the second thing that you do is to get yourself an intercessor. Someone who will pray for you. Someone who will call upon God for you. They said, will you pray for us, Samuel? Will you cry out to the Lord for us? Will you ask God to come and see us fully restored to him? Let me, let me give you the most misquoted half verse in the Bible. I think we've talked about it before. It's a great prayer meeting verse, but it goes like this. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But church, that's half the verse. It's half of it. And it's the last half. 
You mess up the verse if you don't quote the first part of the verse. Everyone loves to quote James 5.16b. But we tend to leave out the first part, which goes like this. Confess your faults one to another. We've talked about confession, what that really means. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do you understand that part two of the verse for the intercessor, the intercessor goes with the guy that just confessed his mess up to the intercessor? That's what that, put that verse in context. That's what that means. What James says to us is this. When you mess up, don't call your girlfriend. Don't call your buddy. Don't call somebody that you know is going to say, hey, bro, yeah, I really feel you. I don't need you to feel me. I don't want you to feel me. No, 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 no. I need somebody who knows how to get a hold of God for me. That's what I need. Not somebody who's only concerned about making me feel better in the moment. But someone who knows how to get in touch with God. Will you pray for me, they said to Samuel. Something's going on in my ear that needs to be turned off, please. Thank you. I'm going to pull this out. Bottom line is, you mess up, you confess, and you find someone who gets a hold of God. You blow it, you find a prayer word that can pray for you. Confess your faults one to another. According to James 5.16, it's a righteous brother or sister who knows how to pray. And there are people all over this church who will pray for you. There's a prayer service at 6 o'clock on Sunday night, and we're going to pray in a specific way tonight. We're going to make opportunity for individual prayer tonight for those of you who say, I need someone to pray for me at 6 o'clock in the service tonight. There's an altar here this morning waiting with people that will pray for you, and they will stick with you, and they will continue to pray for you. So what's the next step? What's the number two step for you? It's confess. It's number two, find an intercessor. Confess your sins. If we confess, he's not only faithful and just to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He not only forgives, but he cleanses so that we don't have to keep adding sin to sin. Church, the forgiving God is also the cleansing God. Hallelujah. Get an intercessor. I will pray for you. In fact, Samuel said that's so important. It would be a sin for me not to pray for you. And then number three, you need an instructor. A godly person who can give you biblical advice. Look again at what Samuel says in verse 23. As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. And I will continue to teach you what is good and right. Church, can I just say to you, we should be praying all the time. Lord, lead us in the good way that we should go. Lord, Lead us in the good way that we should go. Maybe you add that to your prayer over your meal. Lord, bless this food. Thank you for it. And lead us in the good way that we should go. Samuel says to the people, do your business with God in confessing. Get someone that will pray for you. But the third part is this, as Pastor Brennan and Arthur come. You may need some wisdom on what you are to do next if you've messed up. You not only need an intercessor, but you need an instructor, a godly person that can give you biblical advice, a person who says, okay, 
You've messed up. You chose a king. Okay, you messed up. You said something, yes to something when you should have said no. You said yes to something when you should have waited. You need a godly person that can give you biblical advice. I have a couple of those. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to tell you. In fact, I'm quite, quite grateful that I can tell you. There's a couple of men in my life who are instructors to me. And I don't hesitate for a moment to go to them. Happy to all the time and thankful for the nourishment and the enrichment in my soul for having those men in my life. You know, you remember that Jesus was there with Peter, the man that denied Christ three times. Jesus was there to instruct him and lead him in the good way that he should go. So that on the very day that the church would be birthed, in the very city which, he, which Peter denied Christ, that would be the very place that God says, I'm going to send you to the place that you denied me. Peter says, oh no, Jesus, not there. Any place but there, they're going to know me. That little girl who intimidated me and I cursed and, and I failed you. Jesus says, good. Go right back to that same place. I'm going to lead you in the way that you should go. And you're going to preach to 3,000 people, Peter. And who knows? There might be a little girl there in that crowd who will answer the altar call. And you'll have to clothe yourself with humility to preach to her. Church, here's the deal. Whatever we do is going to require humility. Because here's what the Bible said. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And it takes humility to acknowledge, I have messed up. But it takes a person with a heart after God to say, I may have messed up, but I'm now going to be very, very, very careful about the next step that I take. Step number two is going to be very, very critical. And I see in the scripture today that when I mess up, I need to confess it true confession. Where I see my sin as God does and not keep adding sin to sin and disobedience on disobedience. I'm going to confess it and then I need someone to pray for me. Someone who will intercede for me and hold me before the throne of grace. And I need an instructor, someone who will help guide me in the good way that I should go. Can I just say none of us are above that? I'm certainly not. None of us are above that. I'm going to ask you to stand quietly with me, and everyone remain in the room, please, for just a moment. Please respect the house of God. Everyone stay, but stand quietly with me. No one leaving. Prayer partners, if you will move quickly, please come to the front. If you can get here quickly, please. You know, some people talk to me about altar calls. We have them sometimes. And I'm going to also tell you there are times that the Lord gives me specific instruction what I should and should not do at the close of a service. And today is one of those days I know that we're going to open these altars because standing before you is a group of people who know how to get a hold of the Lord and they will pray for you. Are these perfect people? No. But they are people who have walked the walk of faith and God has given them grace and wisdom. This is one of those messages that calls for a response today. We're going to sing in just a moment. Pastor Brent's going to lead us. And this may be the day for you to acknowledge, you know what, Pastor Dan? I have messed up. It, it, may, it, it may have been a simple thing. Maybe you've been serving the Lord a long time, and, and, but somehow you re recognize that the mess up for you is that you've made a critical decision about your life without inquiring of the Lord. That's easy to do. Going along our way. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to get this, we're going to get... But you know what, we didn't, we didn't inquire of the Lord. 
Maybe that's your mess up. Maybe it's something much more critical. It doesn't matter. Make a right second choice. And by coming to this altar this morning, you're going to get up with your face toward the Lord. And you're going to cash in on the truth that failure is not final in grace. You may have made a misstep, but step number two is going to be turning your heart back toward the Lord Jesus. He's going to lead us in something as we sing. And I want you to just simply get out from where you are. We will not elongate the service. Thank you for staying with us and respecting the house of the Lord this morning at this critical moment. Come from the balcony. We'll wait for you. You can come down the stairs and let someone pray for you and anoint you with oil. And just say to them, you know what? I want to make, all you have to say is I want to make a right second step here. So let's do it right now as we sing. Get out from where you are. We're going to pray for you today.